0: This morning, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. And let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father, we do pray that you would open the truth of your word to us today. We would find that we are standing firmly upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets we are looking to Christ Jesus that chief cornerstone and that we are aligning our lives upon him. Pray Father, you know what has occurred in our week, what has occurred in our day. You know what is on our mind about the week ahead. Did you quiet us in your presence? Did you preach a much better sermon than I have put together in preach to each of us as we have need this morning, that you might receive the glory, and that we might know that our Father in heaven has spoken to us. In Christ's holy name, amen. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. This is a holy inerrant, sufficient Word of God. While they were going, behold, Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. During the days of the Roman Empire, especially... The first few centuries, there were many lies that were circulated about Christians that only added to the persecution that they were suffering in those first centuries. In fact, in the second and third centuries, we will refer to those church fathers of those centuries, we will refer to them as the apologists. Because so often what they were doing is they were writing different tracts and they were writing different pieces where they were apologizing, not asking for forgiveness, but apologizing and making a defense of the different accusations that were being leveled against Christ and against the church and what Christians believe. There was one of these apologists by the name of Athenagoras, who wrote in the last half of the 2nd century, and he said this, Three things are alleged against us. Atheism, Thaestian feasts, and Oedipodian intercourse. Now you have to understand a little bit of Roman and Greek culture to understand these three things that were laid at the foot of Christians in those early centuries. The first is that they were called atheists. It wasn't that they were called atheists because they believed that there was no God. They were called atheists because they didn't believe in the whole myriad and pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. And so the charge that was often leveled against Christians is you are atheists, you don't believe in the gods. The second that Athanagoras says here is that they were accused of Thaistian feasts. Thaistian, Thaistius was a king of Olympia in Greek mythology and it was said that he had an affair with his brother's wife and so his brother to get even with Thaistius decided and plotted and planned that he would get even with him by murdering his two sons and then he cooked his two sons and served them to Thaistius. In essence, what Athenagoras is arguing and what was true is that early Christians were lied about and called cannibals. Why is it that they were called cannibals? It was because they would have a part of their morning worship service on a Sabbath day where they would gather together and in this part of their service they would exclude anyone that had not been admitted into the church and they would go in and in privacy it was said that there they ate the body of and they drank the blood of their Lord and their Master and the One that they called Savior. Their cannibals. It wasn't only that that Athenagoras is pointing out, he also points out that they were accused of Oedipidean intercourse. Many of you will remember the story of Oedipus in Greek mythology and the incest that occurred there. And so, what he is arguing is, and this was true, is that Christians were often labeled and pigeonholed as incestuous. And why was that the case? Because they called one another brother and sister. They would give each other, as we see in the New Testament epistles, a holy kiss. They would have love feasts together. And so here you have in the the first centuries, you have Christians called atheistic, cannibalistic, incestuous people. It would be funny if it wasn't. So devastatingly wrong and dangerous, because there will be men and women and children that will be burned at the stake and will be fed to lions and will die at a sword's point in a coliseum based upon these charges. Lies. Lies have always been told about Christ, about the Christian faith, about the church, we could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and there we had the very first lie where the serpent says to Eve, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. It was a lie. And the result was sin and death that came into the world. Jesus will say of the serpent, will say of Satan in John 8, He will say He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in Him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And there, Jesus will say in John 8, as he is speaking to these adversaries, Jews that are accusing Jesus of different things, he will say, you are of your father, the devil. Because he speaks lies, you speak lies. Like father, like son. You remember, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, as we've gone through the Gospel, Jesus has been accused of being a glutton. They spread rumors and lies that He was a drunkard. They spread rumors and lies that He was an idolater, that He was a blasphemer. It will be blasphemy that He will be charged on in the Sanhedrin, and it will be blasphemy that they declare Him guilty of. It's all lies. And now they're taking aim at His resurrection and at His disciples. This is not the most uplifting of texts, uh, not the most encouraging of texts, but I want us to wrestle with it and see what we can glean from it this morning as we wrestle through it. I want to first look at the what of this text. The what. And the what is the great lie. The what. And then we'll look at the how, and then we'll look at the why. But first, I want to look at the what. The great lie. And this great lie is aimed at the great miracle. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Everything. All of human history, all of the universe is changed by the resurrection. And the adversaries of Jesus know this. The sons of Satan know this. And so we find in this text the great lie that is perpetrated because of it. You'll remember there were guards that were stationed at the tomb of Jesus. We saw them uh, last week and the week before, and they were stationed there to, to guard the tomb of Christ, and we're told that after that resurrection account, after Jesus has raised from the grave, and after these soldiers, these guards have Fallen down as though dead when they saw this angel and saw the stone rolled away. Now, these same guards, some of them, Matthew tells us, are on their way to the chief priests and to the elders of the Jews. And we're told there that they told the chief priests all that had taken place. What is included in the all? I I don't know. Uh, is it that they are testifying that they saw Jesus' bodily resurrected person? Is that part of the all? I don't think so. I don't think so because the women, you'll remember, are on their way back from the tomb and it's then that Jesus and His resurrected body appears to them. You'll remember that He tells them that the disciples are to go to Galilee because He will appear to them in Galilee. They will see His physical resurrected body. Nobody saw it, I don't think, they're at the tomb. They didn't see His resurrected body. That's not part of the all. But they did see the empty tomb. And so they go off to tell the chief priests, and they go off to tell the elders that they've seen this empty tomb, and the angel that they saw. And we're told that when the chief priests and the elders heard this report from the guards... That they took counsel together in verse 12. Now, that, that's pregnant language. If you have the knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures rattling around in your head, you hear they took counsel together, and things should start firing. It should lead you right back to that great messianic psalm, that psalm 2. That psalm where we are told that the Nations, the rulers, they gather together and they, quote, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And what do they take counsel together about? Against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. They take counsel together. They know what the resurrection means. They've heard it. And they know what it means, and so they take counsel together against God on high, and they take counsel together against His anointed, that is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And as they do, God just sits enthroned above, and the psalmist says he laughs. It's a laugh of derision, because it's it's a, it's a fool's errand. It's silly that they take counsel together to try and throw off these bonds that they see and all the implications of the resurrection. It's folly. As I told you two weeks ago, the kingdom of God never, ever faces setbacks. Never. God is always, always, always accomplishing His purposes for His glory and for the good of His people. He never faces setbacks. And so even though they plot and they plan and they're going to try and lie about the resurrection, even this God will use for His own glory and for the good of His people. The chief priests and the elders, they come up with this lie, verse 13. Tell people His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. Now... The guards, they stand to lose an awful lot by telling this lie and accepting this lie and beginning to perpetrate this lie. There is great risk here for them. They could be brought up on charges. It was a capital offense then as it has been through much and almost all of military history that if you fall asleep on guard duty uh, that is a capital offense and so them professing this and spreading this lie, it would have been something that could bring them great injury. But you see, they find themselves stuck in a conundrum. There's also great risk if they don't. There's great danger if they don't tell the chief priest's story because they were charged with guarding the body of Jesus and making sure that the body of Jesus did not leave that tomb. You remember, that's why the chief priests and the elders went to Pontius Pilate in the first place. They said, we need a guard so that we can seal the tomb so that Jesus' disciples don't come and steal the body and then spread a lie around that Jesus was raised from the grave. They had a job. You had one job. Seal the tomb. That's it. Make sure that body stays in there. And the body didn't stay in there. So they're in a conundrum. There's risk on both sides of the equation. No doubt because they thought they were in trouble either way they chose the lie because there were inducements that the priests and the elders gave with the lie they gave them two inducements the first is that they would be allies to these guards we'll be your allies and they needed allies The chief elders and the priests, they promise that if they tell this lie, these guards in verse 14, that if they tell this lie, that if at any point Pilate hears that Jesus' body is no longer in that tomb, that they will make sure, they will make sure that Pilate is not severe with them. And these are men of no small reputation, of no small prestige, of no small place. They have influence. It's often what the world promises. It gets us to lie. It promises influence. And if not influence, it promises the other that they use as an inducement here, money. Satan only has one playbook. He doesn't change it. They gave them, as Matthew says in verse 12, a quote, sufficient sum of money. And it needed to be sufficient because these guards were putting their lives in jeopardy by telling this lie. It is interesting to me that the Jewish leaders who remember the whole thing that they were trying to guard against was putting a seal around the tomb with guards. The whole thing they were trying to guard against was some kind of gossip spreading that Jesus had actually been resurrected from the grave when His disciples had stolen the body. And now here they are telling this story. His disciples stole the body. And they're circulating it all around. Why spread this lie? Because it's a less threatening story to their lives. It's a less threatening story to their livelihood than the true story that Jesus was raised. That's why. Second, how do we know that this was a lie? How do we know that this is a lie? As a skeptic, you read the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's the only one that reports this little interlude here about this lie circulating among the Jews. And you'd say, well, look, Wouldn't we expect Matthew, a disciple, to say that this was a lie that was circulating? That it was a made-up story? Yeah, I'm willing to cede that. Makes sense that we would expect Matthew to say such a thing. But I want you to consider a few things with me. First, if the guards were truly asleep, then the question is, how would they know that Jesus' body was stolen from the grave? How would they know that Jesus' disciples had descended upon that tomb and stolen it from the grave if they were truly asleep? And if the stone, when the stone was rolled away, wouldn't one of them have awoken? And if at least one of them had awoken and seen Jesus' disciples stealing the body from the grave, why didn't they sound the alarm and stop Jesus' disciples from stealing the body from the grave? And the answer is, they didn't stop it. Because that's not how it happened. He was resurrected. Second, disturbing graves in the ancient world was a crime. And it was a crime that was often punishable by death. So if these chief priests and if these elders had even an ounce of evidence, even a little bit of evidence, that the disciples had indeed stolen Jesus' body from the grave, why didn't they press charges against them? And the answer is because they had no such evidence. And why is that? because Jesus was truly bodily resurrected from the grave. Third, the early disciples clearly believed that Jesus was raised from the grave. And contrary to the soldiers, they stood no benefit from claiming this. If they were perpetrating a lie, it was of no benefit to them, whereas the soldiers, the guards perpetrating their lie, there was benefit to them. You remember, these disciples were, as we saw last week and the week before, they were cowering in fear. They were in an inner room. They were afraid. Their Lord and their Master, this one that they thought would be their Messiah and their Christ, He had been tried as a criminal. He had been crucified as a criminal. And He was dead. And they're hunkered down in fear. Fear. But then how do you explain it that just a few days after that? A few days after His death, they're now going out. But they're not just going out, they're going out boldly. They're not going out timidly. They're going out courageously. And they're preaching to everyone that they can find that this Jesus, this Lord and this Master that they had followed, that they had watched condemned as a criminal, this One that they had watched died, They are proclaiming to everyone, you need to believe in Him. How do they go from fear-mongering, fear-afraid of everything, hunkered down together to being courageous and telling everyone to believe in this one? What's the difference? It's the resurrection. And they stood to gain nothing in an earthly sense. All they stood to game was being labeled alongside of this one that had been condemned as a criminal and to be persecuted as he was persecuted. Think about all of these early disciples. John will be exiled. All the other ten will be martyred for the faith. They will all be put to death. Why? Why? because they had seen the bodily resurrection of Christ. Christianity doesn't start like so many other religions. It doesn't start with those who started it heading up armies or rising to governmental offices or accumulating riches or a whole bunch of wives or having control over a region or being worshipped themselves. That's not how it happened. For at least three centuries, the church will know nothing except persecution. They will die and die and die and die and die. Why? Because they knew that he had been bodily raised from the grave. That's why. Let's make one simple and necessary point. think all of this could have been stopped by the Jews? It could have been stopped by the Romans? They only need to do one thing. They could have stopped the spread of this faith. They could have stopped what they believed to be error and something damaging to their world and to their status and to their prestige and to their position. They could have all stopped it by doing one thing. They only had to do one thing. They just had to point at and say, "Look, here is the body of Jesus." But they couldn't do it. And why couldn't they do it? Because it had been raised. It's a lie. Why tell this lie? Our third point? Because the resurrection upsets. Everything. It upsets everything. All the universe is changed by the resurrection. All of life is changed by the resurrection. It can't be ignored. These are worldly men with worldly affections and a worldly agenda, and their world is threatened. And so they spread a lie. It threatens, first, their status quo. This is often why people will reject Christ and His resurrection, because it threatens the status quo. These chief priests and these elders, they didn't want their world, their agenda, their plans, their life disrupted. The resurrection of Jesus, it upsets things. It doesn't leave the world it is proclaimed in untouched. It doesn't leave the life that it pervades in untouched. It disturbs. It demands. It dominates. When you encounter the resurrection, it doesn't leave you alone. It requires from you. And you have to be conformed to it. You have to begin to see the world through the lens of the resurrection. This was true in the first century world and it's true today. People can't ignore it. They either have to dismiss it with lies or they have to be conformed to it. Leads to the second reason that they will deny it and others will as well, and that is personal preservation. Here, if you want to ascend in this world, then you cannot identify with Christ. That's what we hear. Thinking people do not believe in miracles like a resurrection. Promotions in the workplace, income, reputation, just being liked, being considered a tolerant, loving, friendly, likable person is not how Christians are considered. If you want to succeed in this world, oh, don't claim to be a Christian, or at least don't be vocal about it. That's what you're told. Are you sure you want to align yourself with Christ? These guards are presented with this dilemma. Their lives and their livelihood are threatened. It's the same for the chief priests. It's the same for these elders. There is a, a desire for personal preservation. and So they deny it. They lie about it. When I'm counseling others as a pastor, I often find that this is the question we get to and i'm wrestling with sin in my own heart my own life and i'm wrestling i find this is the question i'm often getting to is this one right here is do you trust do you trust god or do you believe that it's better to avoid the pains in this world as it promises you a way or do you trust god at least in this circumstance, as you're wrestling with this circumstance, with this sin, with this thing, do I believe that by doing this I can avoid more pain or will I actually trust God in this? That's the question. It's the old lie of Satan in the garden. Can you really trust him? It's the lie of Satan in the wilderness when he tempts Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world apart from the cross. If you want to preserve yourself, do not trust God. How about the resurrection changes all of that? It says no matter how deep the darkness, there is light that follows no matter how resounding the death or the suffering, there is life that follows. The resurrection changes everything. And it says no matter what high waters you're in, no matter what burdens are coming upon you by your trusting in God, you know that there is the hope of the resurrection. You know that it doesn't end there. And he's worthy of trust. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, Jesus said. It's in giving ourselves fully at all times to him that we are truly, personally preserved. The third reason I think they sow this lie and why we will often buy into the lies of this world and deny Christ, deny the faith, deny the resurrection is what I would call group think. As a staff, we're reading a wonderful book, wish all of you would read it, uh, Alan Jacobs' book, uh, How to Think, and Jacobs points out that very few of us truly think. We don't really think. Because just like the resurrection thinking is disruptive, it questions the comfortable and the familiar. It can complicate our relationships. It can complicate our desires, our pursuits. And so we just kind of default to the group think. He makes the case, and I think the right case, that you and I, we never really rise above a bias. We always, are always thinking according to a group. That's just how we work as people. It's just kind of a, a group thing together, and that can be positive. There are positive things about that, but there can be great negatives about that as well. The things that we do in group think, as we see here, you got these priests, you got these elders, you got these soldiers all group thinking together, no one willing to question or to think outside the group. Often what happens in a group think is that we don't allow ourselves to think about anything else because what we will do is we will ascribe to those people or that view, some label, some way of just pigeonholing it and pushing it aside. These disciples, they're liars. Who wants to even consider the message of a group of atheistic, incestuous cannibals? Or today's version, Christians are intolerant, homophobic, patriarchal, holier-than-thou, judgmental fundamentalists. Who wants to listen from them? You see, Christians, we often do the same thing. And we can do the same thing. We throw around labels to dismiss. Because labels have social capital. They're socially approved, like... The Shibboleths in the Old Testament, we know that if I say this within my group, it identifies me as part of that group. And there's an emotional bond because of that. It reinforces the group. You have these priests, and you have these elders, and you have these guards, and there's not a backbone among them. Just group think. There's reward in this. There's gratification. There's pleasure of sharing an attitude. And there's a pleasure of sharing wrath when a perspective is not taken outside of our group or even within it. You see, again, I I come to everything biased. Everything. Without qualm. I come to everything everything as a Christian, everything. By God's grace, I want to come to everything as a Christian looking at everything through the lens of the resurrection, everything. I'm biased. You see what often happens is we get in these groups, and they can be helpful, but they can also be bad. Because We just become an echo chamber and we just say things that help solidify us more as a group and we aren't willing to actually think. Jacob said it this way. He said, social bonding is cemented by shared emotion. Shared emotion generates social bonding. It's a feedback loop from which reflection is excluded. And we're all shaped by this. This is just part of being human. It's just part of it. But you see, the world's not aware of it, or doesn't seem to be, and as it is trying to make everything polarized, everything, that has a way of creeping into the church and into our lives and doing the same thing. But you see, we're to be aware of it, and we're to rejoice in it where it's right, and we are to be on guard against it where it is wrong. leads to two ways I want you to think about groupthink from this passage's applications today. Two lies that we need to avoid in our thinking as Christians, as a group. First is, let us not fail to recognize that the world is hostile to the Christian faith. The world is hostile to the Christian faith. The resurrection is good news, but the world does not receive the resurrection as good news. It doesn't want it. Because it turns the world upside down, as we see in the book of Acts. They don't want it. And this should never surprise us. Christians are too often shocked And then they become devastated and depressed that, oh, the world is marginalizing us. The world is critiquing us. They don't give us a seat at the table as they do others. They seem to take us alone and do something different with us. And they seem to persecute us. And we get shocked and we watch Christians get obsessed with the news and with politics and think the whole world is ending and enter into some kind of depression. And why is that? because we think wrongly in some regard that the world is friendly to us or at the very least is neutral to us. It is not friendly. It is not neutral. It is an enemy of the church. Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He said, In the world you will have tribulation. This is not our home. It's not your home. So expect to be lied about. Expect them to misrepresent the faith. Expect them to misrepresent your Christ. I often think to myself, I think, I don't want to go through the world as a cynic. I don't always want to be thinking like, oh, of course this is what they're going to do. Not like that often pray to the Lord, Lord, help me to be surprised by sin, but not shocked by it, not devastated by it. We should never be shocked by it. The world is not a friend, it's an enemy. But here's the second error Christians too often make in their thinking. We recognize that the world is hostile to the church and our Christ, and that leads us to hate the world. Instead of in a very real sense what you and I are to do, we are to love the world. I think uh, it is no mistake that Matthew sandwiches this where he does in the gospel. He's just given us the resurrection of Christ. And The women are sent out, and the disciples are going to be sent out. And so you have this testimony that He has been raised. He has triumphed over sin. He's triumphed over death. He's triumphed over Satan. And you're getting ready, as we'll see next week, He's going to issue the Great Commission. You're to go out, and you're to share this good news with the world. And sandwiched in between all of that is this, that the world is lying about this Christ and lying about the resurrection. Now, why does He do that? I think it's to sober us. To say, look, here is the good news. This is what you need to do with the good news. But you also know this is the reality. The world does not want this. The world is going to lie about this. But what Matthew is telling you and I, that doesn't mean that you and I retreat. We don't go into some kind of insular holy huddle, we don't shirk away from the world. No, because we have what the world needs. It doesn't want it, but it needs it. It needs to know of the resurrection. It needs to know that Christ has triumphed over sin and death and hell. It needs you and I proclaiming it. I think what often happens, especially in our day, it feels of late, the Christian, more than anything, is just outraged by the world. So outraged by what's happening in our world. There are things to be outraged about, but man, if that is not equally moved with compassion for the world and desire to see the world lost with this good news, then there's something wrong with our faith. We don't understand. We're in the wrong group, think. After darkness comes light. I was meditating upon Psalm 92 this week. It is the one psalm in the whole Psalter that is referred to as a Sabbath psalm. The only one Sabbath psalm sung on the the Sabbath. And in that, it's very similar to Psalm 2 in that the psalmist is talking about how all God's enemies will be destroyed and He will stand in the end. And then it says this in verse 12 of Psalm 92. It says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. That imagery is often used of Believers throughout the scriptures of a palm tree. Solomon will have palm trees decorating the inside of the temple that he builds all over the place. And it's a sign of the fact that though there may be arid days and there may be drought, and though the sun may, that Middle Eastern sun may beat upon that tree and there may be a great burden, palm trees still stand. They still prosper. They still grow. They can bear all of that burden. And I love what the psalmist says there in Psalm 92. He says, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. That is, you can continue to flourish in a dark world, in an arid world, in a dry world. Because why? Because you are planted in God. No matter what the world brings, the Christian can prosper and the Christian can continue to grow and continue to flourish because they are in God. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, the resurrection turns all of this upside down. You can withstand whatever the world brings because He was raised. Some of you have gone through severe seasons of trial, of persecution, where your faith has been tested. I dare say all of us will go through it in one season or another, if not in increasing seasons. And this is what we have to keep returning to look, because he was resurrected, everything changes. So I can persevere in the midst of this. I will still cling to Him because He's raised from the grave. No matter what lies are sowed about me or about my faith or about the church or about Christians, I will continue to stand firm upon this truth of this One that came down from heaven. He lived. He suffered. He died. He was buried. He was raised. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He now reigns in glory. And you know what? He's coming back and because He's coming back, I will keep clinging to Him. You've got to stand firm. Just close with this. Samuel Rutherford was reading him this week, old 17th century Presbyterian pastor, and he said this, he says, what does it matter if we are mistreated in the smoky ends of this miserable life? Our fair morning is at hand. The day star is near the rising. And we are not many miles from home. We're not far from home, dear Christian. He's coming back to bring his home. Stand firm in Christ to the very end no matter what lies the world sows. Let's pray. Our Father, we do exalt You. We're thankful that You are a God in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, that in You is all truth, that You do not lie. And so your promises are true and can hold us through the darkest of days to the very end. And we cling fast to our Savior, knowing that it is the truthiest truth there is, that the Son of God came into this world, that He lived and He suffered and He died for sinners, that He was raised on the third day and even now reigns from above and will return in glory. We stand firm upon this truth. We see all of our life and all of life in light of our risen Savior. To your glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.